Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Sean, Stuart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Well, good to connect as always, guys. Yeah, so the 20th of January, a busy week to wrap up for Hub listeners and readers. I want to start the program over in Europe. Uh, Big action on multiple fronts on uh, the Ukraine war. Most notably, our defense minister, Anand, was touring uh, Kiev in Ukraine, announced a commitment on the part of Canada to lend 200 um, troop personnel kind of carriers to the Ukraine war effort. This comes at a moment where NATO allies are meeting in at Rumsfeld Air Force Base today to discuss uh, a significant possible commitment, uh, and some would say an escalation of this war, heavy tanks going into Ukraine to potentially support uh, a spring or even winter 2023 offensive. Sean, let me come to you first and get your take on, I guess, the, the Canadian response here in the context of this larger international push to seemingly shore up the Ukrainian government with more heavy armaments to persecute this war in a way that I think, frankly, eight months ago would have been almost inconceivable. Yeah, yeah, isn't that right? Um, You know, there's been uh, so much momentum uh, uh, in Canada and across, across Western allies uh, to kind of double down on support of Ukraine, in part because of the powerful emotional appeal that President Zelensky and the Ukrainian uh, people um, have have advanced, um, um, but also um, you know th- progress on the ground at different points over the past uh, several months. Um, I admit that I've been caught up at, at different times uh, in these kind of stirring moments of pushback against a um you know a belligerent and totalitarian actor in Russia but I I do think that it, they're increasing onus on the Trudeau government to start to kind of articulate how these different decisions whether it's the 200 armored vehicles that you mentioned or ongoing questions about whether we'll go further and actually provide uh tanks within our kind of military, supply you know it seems to me these choices have to be presented in a kind of broader framework rooted in canadian national interests not merely about kind of going along to get along at these international meetings um i'll stop speaking in a minute but listeners will know that the the hub generally i think was positive on the trudeau government's indo-pacific strategy um late last year which did sought to seek sought to establish a bit of a framework for how it thinks about um, Canada's position vis-a-vis China and other parts of of the Indo-Pacific region. I think that's lacking. Um, that similar kind of framework is lacking for how we think about Europe in general, and in particular, uh, our ongoing involvement in the Ukraine war. And I think it's needed sooner rather than later 
Um, because as you kind of alluded, Rudyard, some of these choices that uh, Canada and other jurisdictions are making uh, will have the uh, cumulative effect of of intensifying um, what is a you know a pretty fraught set of circumstances um, on the European continent. Thanks, Sean. Stuart, you know, very understandable that obviously a lot of our foreign affairs, defense, foreign policy would be centered on the war in Ukraine. But, you know, sometimes we forget we kind of share an Arctic and affect a border with Russia. It, it, it always kind of interests me that we, I don't know, I, I never heard this government articulate a broader kind of strategy towards Russia. Let's say in the same way that Sean just mentioned that we've finally come around to to articulate vis-a-vis -vis China and Canada's role there. Um, Stuart, what's driving this? I mean, is this just simply public opinion um, is at the the front of the bus here, moving a government forward? Uh, where's, in a sense, framework, or is it not even really realistic to ask or expect for strategy, framework, uh, kind of sober second thought? Yeah, I, I think that there's a good chance the government shared an assumption that I had in the early days of this, which is that, um, you know, we know we've seen some shakiness in Germany about this, but I think most of Europe has surprised us by how, how much it's committed to Ukraine. And I would say that also the Biden administration has surprised me and others about how um, resolute they've been um, in this. And you, I think we should think back to those early days where, you know, Biden was talking about a minor incursion and everybody thought that the West would do nothing um, and things have really changed. And I think the key thing here is that I had kind of assumed that because of the domestic situation in Canada, where we have a lot of Ukrainian Canadians, the Trudeau government probably thought they could get away with a certain amount of rhetoric on this, um, a certain amount of um, support for Ukraine that maybe would get lost in the diplomatic um, discussions. And, you know, we'd have to go along with what Germany said, because Germany is always a little bit cautious about this kind of stuff. Um, but everyone has been more resolute than I think we would have expected. And Canada has been right there with it. And I in those early days, we were worried about the precedent that might be set um, if the West did nothing or if the West did next to nothing. And I would maybe suggest that it start, it's time to start thinking about what precedents are we setting now um, if we keep supporting this, if we keep adding um, tanks and vehicles. Um, at some point, the war has got to end. And at some point, there will have to be a peace or something, something to let Russia save face or something to get everybody on side here. Um, and the more we do this, the harder that gets. Um, so I would imagine those discussions are going to start happening soon. I, I think that's what's happening right now. But um, I think public opinion, especially in Canada, is driving a lot of this. I'm always interested about how we articulate our national interests uh, and sometimes the absence of debate about what our interests actually consist of. You know, I was struck this week. And again, people can say, you know, this is just more, you know, Russian, you know, menacing. Uh, but, you know, there was a, a statement in response to uh, reports in the New York Times that the Biden administration was considering removing uh, a restriction that had been placed on these high Mars. These are the long range uh missile systems that they had provided to Ukraine in terms of attacking into Russia. In this case, not Russia proper, but Crimea, which was illegally occupied uh, by Russia in 2016. But nonetheless, uh, Medvedev comes back, uh, effectively uh, Putin's kind of number two, with uh, a pretty chilling statement, which, you know, I mean, this guy's a complete 
moron and uh, idiot nine tenths of the time. But this statement, I don't know, guys, it, there's some geopolitical kind of truth in it. And it was the following. He said the loss of a nuclear power in a conventional war can provoke the outbreak of a nuclear war. Nuclear powers do not lose major conflicts in which their fate depends. You know, there's a lot of truth in that. And I don't know, Sean, I just, I, I wonder at what point, again, this is very politically incorrect to say this, but at what point are our interests always synonymous with Ukraine? If there yeah. is even a, a one in one in a hundred risk that this conflict could lead due to, you know, now we're talking heavy armaments, uh, attacks directly into uh, Crimea, possibly more Ukrainian attacks into Russia proper, even if there's a one in a hundred chance of uh, Russia using a nuclear weapon, the costs of that to international relations, to global peace and security in the Middle East, in Southeast Asia, unfathomable and absolutely against and opposed to Canada's long-term international interests. Yeah, you know, it seems to me in that circumstance, Rudyard, all bets are off. Um, we are then operating in a geopolitical context without a playbook. And um, one can't imagine how it would um, come to manifest itself um, and what it would mean for, uh, uh, you know, for China and for, for other countries um, who themselves have, you know, a, a set of a geopolitical uh, interests and priorities. I, I think your point, um, you know, is a, a tough yet right one, uh, which is to say, up until now, I think there is a persuasive case that uh, the interests of the West and Ukraine have been broadly aligned. Uh, Ukraine is uh, standing up for international law, and it's pushing back against uh, a, an enemy of the West. Um, but as you say, uh, it 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 doesn't follow um that our interests will always be aligned and you know you regularly do a podcast for the monk debates uh with janice stein and i i would just say a couple of weeks ago janice was on the agenda and she she expressed a concern that no one neither president Zelensky nor president biden nor prime minister trudeau no nor leaders across uh europe are positioning um our societies for that moment when our interests do start to diverge and we need to make some tough calls about um you know pulling back support for ukraine if that's needed in order to get ultimately get them um to some kind of accommodation these are difficult issues uh especially when emotions are high um but as you say rudyard uh we need a kind of clear-eyed national interest driven uh policy out of the Trudeau government um, um, now more than ever, as it kind of confronts these pretty fundamental decisions about um, Canada's place in the world and Canada's interests in the world. I always wonder, I mean, it's very black to think about this, Stuart, but, you know, we're sending 200 armored personnel carriers to Ukraine. What do you think the targeting solutions are on Russian ICBMs? And how many of them have, you know, fire patterns that include you know, Canadian geography. I, I mean, again, it's so apocalyptic. <clears throat> it's in a sense unthinkable. But these are realities that, as Sean said, if God in that horrible situation where, let's say, 
Crimea is under attack. Uh, and remember, Crimea is not the Donbass for Russia. This is a place in the 19th century where half a million Russians died in something called the Crimean War. And I think often because of our ahistoricism, we tend to completely forget how these wars, unfortunately, are fueled by nationalism, by deep memory, by deep identity. It's irrational. It has no place in how nations should comport themselves today or in the importance of territorial sovereignty. So don't get me wrong. The Russian occupation of Crimea is illegal. But but this is this is uh, bloodlands for Russia, for lack of a better expression. And and again, Stuart, I just feel like we we just conveniently forget all this. We just we we describe in newspapers that Crimea is a holiday vacation spot for Russians and a naval base. It's a lot more than that. I don't know. I just I, I worry, guys. I worry that we look back at the last year almost of this war, and it's just a steady drumbeat of escalation on both sides. And we can hope, we can hope that this all just somehow ends up at a negotiating table somewhere at some time. But look at the other great wars, the other great wars that have engulfed Europe in the last uh, century or more. They often don't end up at the negotiating table before some kind of conflagration. Um, I don't know, sir, maybe I'm too, too caught up in history and the echoes of the past, but I just, I worry here that we're creeping towards escalation with really little or no debate in Canada about what that means. Yeah, I, I think that's such a great point that, um, you know, I was born in Scotland and, you know, you go home and you see buildings that are older than Canada um, <laughs> as soon as you get out of the airport. And I always wondered when I was a kid, like, why is my dad still mad about this battle of Culloden? Like, it's just such a strange thing. And uh, we don't really have that in Canada. It's just, you know, it's a different kind of country. And um, I, I think that's worth remembering. The other thing I think that's worth remembering is that um, we have to think about what we expect to happen after this. Um, you know, there are two very bad scenarios. One, of course, is the apocalyptic one um, involving nuclear weapons, which is, you know, I wouldn't say likely, but it's not off the table. We have to still think about that. The second one I think is more likely, which is that, you know, we talk about face saving and negotiations and people might ask, why would you care if the Russians can save face? But you know, Putin's a bad guy, but there are worse guys in Russia and, you know, a, a coup or, you know, something like that, that puts someone worse in power who then um, has a chip on his shoulder about what has happened in Ukraine and has a resentful population. I mean, we've heard this story before. Um, so I think all this kind of stuff is worth um, thinking about. And, you know, if you look at the way the Germans are starting to push back, that's because of geography, they're closer and people in Germany have more to fear than we do. And I think it's worth listening to that. Excellent guys. Let's uh, take a break here. Uh, we'll come back on the other side. We're going to talk the other great existential pondering facing Canadians. Yes. Healthcare. Lots of Strum and Drang this week echoing from Ontario uh, with the Doug Ford government's uh, controversial announcements to Ottawa, where rumors, hey, another deal. What was that Paul Martin phrase? We're going to save healthcare for a generation. Well, it, seems it didn't last very long. They may try to do it again. So we're going to break that all down for you right after this break. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. 
Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting-edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive in to the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge, at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Okay, guys, uh, we got to talk healthcare on the back half of the show. It's been a busy week on this file. Um, I want to come to you first, Sean, because you've been writing about it in the pages of the Hub. Are we seeing something, Sean, that's important here, like a genuine inflection point where the future trajectory of healthcare policy and delivery is at a moment of change in Canada? Or as we heard towards the end of the week, rumors of a big new funding deal between the provinces and Ottawa, are we simply going to try to smother this problem again with a giant wad or pot of cash, as has traditionally been the Canadian public policy response to uh, sustaining a system that is increasingly struggling to produce the kind of outcomes that people expect. Yeah, I, I couldn't put it better myself, um, uh, Rudyard. We started the week uh, with uh, what looked like a, a pretty exciting um, announcement on the part of the Ford government, challenging the kind of third rail of Canadian politics um, by making a straightforward argument for the need for more private delivery within the universal system and uh, what I wrote at the Hub about the announcement, uh, as you and Stuart know, is what strikes me about it is this isn't a case of a, a you know dogmatic right-wing government imposing an ideological solution on top of a healthcare system. It follows a, a series of provincial governments from the center left to the center right, uh, essentially coming to the same conclusion um, that we uh, have a supply-demand disequilibrium kind of structurally embedded in our healthcare system, um, and that there are limits on solving that um, that supply-demand gap uh, with more provincial dollars, and so that there's a need to bring on some uh, private capacity. Uh, and you know, I think this represents uh, one of the most kind of exciting moments in 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 healthcare policy making at the beginning of the week, and then we end the week. Uh, with the reports uh, from the Globe and Mail that we're on the cusp of a massive new federal-provincial funding deal. And um, my biggest concern is if what's passed is prologue, that deal, Rudyard and Stewart, will purchase stasis, not progress, that it will um, come to undermine um, the, the progress that we're seeing at the provincial level, experimenting with different forms of delivery all within um, the, the the public system. So all this to say, we started the week with a bang, and I worry we're ending a week um, uh, with a, putting a stick in the spokes of of uh, real progress in Canada's uh, healthcare system. Now, what's interesting, Stuart, is that the Prime Minister, despite a lot of pressure from the NDP and Jagmeet Singh, has not come out and in any way criticized uh, Doug Ford's uh, stated intention here to deal with surgery and other kind of backlogs in the healthcare system by allowing, you know, private clinics to provide services, you know, within the framework of OHIP and with OHIP billing and OHIP 
standards and regulations, et cetera, et cetera. It's interesting. The prime minister has been surprisingly quiet on that. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating because if you remember during the 2021 election when they found an old clip of Aaron O'Toole, I think just not even saying, he wasn't even praising private delivery. He was saying, you know, it might work. Um, that was a two-day scandal during that election. Um, so you know they have the ammo if they want to use it. Um, but I think maybe that should have been our first clue that something was up uh, with a deal between the feds and the provinces that um, they were kind of putting down their weapons for a little while. Um, and I think if the federal government is sort of sitting tight about this, they have realized what I think I realized um, last year when I was writing about private delivery and surgical backlogs that there, I, I think, is literally no other way to solve this problem other than, you know, venting it with private delivery. And um, I, some of the best proof of that is that the BC NDP government um, used very effectively private delivery to clear their surgical backlog. And I, I think this is one of those debates that's really frustrating if you know even a little bit about it, because a lot of the backlash to it is um, incomprehensible and doesn't quite reflect the reality of what's happening or the reality that we use a lot of private clinics in the Canadian healthcare system and also that the rest of the world also does that, um, people with uh, countries with universal systems. So um, I think maybe this is one of those moments where the government just has to uh, shut up. And uh, if they want to get their deal signed and put healthcare away for a few years, um, I think that's what has to happen. And I think probably that's what the premiers were telling the prime minister was, if you want to put this down for a little while as an issue, then we just need to do this. I, I would just uh, also underscore for for listeners that if these reports are accurate um and we see an infusion of federal dollars in provincial healthcare systems that take the federal share of overall public health care spending somewhere from 22% of gdp or probably 22% of the total cost where it is today to something approaching one third which is what the the provinces have been calling for for some time that is going to uh, dedicate a massive share of kind of scarce resources at the federal level um, for healthcare. We just finished a conversation about um, geopolitics, national defense, the Canadian interests in a fraught world. You know, say goodbye to any aspirations of reaching a two percent of GDP spending on military on military on our military, for instance, in a world where um, that much scarce resources is going towards healthcare. Also, you know, it seems to me uh, we've been talking for some time about how provinces are facing fiscal unsustainability over the long term and that Ottawa is looking relatively strong. It, again, if these reports are true, um, that story is essentially over. Um, all of the fiscal firepower that Ottawa could ostensibly have in the coming years will now be spoken for. So this is a, a kind of massive deal that doesn't just have effects for healthcare, but really uh, for the ambitions of an, our national government in a moment where I think one could argue um, the, the powers accorded to the federal government in the constitution in section 91 are, are more important than they've been in a long, long time because of some of the issues we just talked about. So uh, I think there is real reason to kind of scrutinize uh, what the province and the federal government are doing here, not just because I, I, I don't think it's going to produce results that it ought to within our healthcare systems, but because I I worry a bit that it represents a further erosion of uh, federal power. What's what's your take, Rudyard? Well, there's another piece to this, which is, you know, it's uh, again, people think this is a kind of heartless argument, but it's I think one that has to be made is that we are allocating 
a greater, greater share of tax revenues at the provincial and now if this deal goes ahead at the federal level to engage in activity, which is, you know, demonstrably less productive than other types of public investment. I mean, in many cases, because of our aging population, you are literally extending people's lives by a matter of weeks and months at, you know, the very end of their, of their lifespans. And those, those activities are using, you know, existing technologies. Um, they're incredibly cost uh, intensive. I think some, some crazy stat, like 95% of your entire lifetime drawdown on healthcare, you know, capacity in Canada, you as an individual occurs within the last six months of, of your life. So as the baby boomers age, this is that drawdown just gets bigger and bigger. And the expenditure is again towards, you know, unfortunately for many people, really lousy quality of life in those in those final six months. Now I'm not, I'm not recommending here math, mass euthanasia as a, uh, a public uh, you know, finance uh, strategy. But what I am saying is that we have to understand that these expenditures aren't just an unalloyed good. It's not just, wow, more healthcare for everybody, less wait times, better long-term home care. It is, it's allocating the public purse towards spending outcomes that will not meaningfully advance Canada's already incredibly lackluster productivity vis-a-vis our G8 or OECD peers. And we know that productivity is how you generate wealth. It's how you ensure that social programs, including healthcare in the future, can actually be sustainably funded. And there, you know, we've done it in the hub. We've shared this information. You can find it anybody with a few, you know, clicks on Google. You know, the OECD is predicting for Canada some of the worst productivity gains, well below 2% for the next four decades. So we have a productivity program. This isn't solving it. It's making it worse. And I just wish, I wish governments could think and chew gum at the same time. If you're going to do this, come up with the second strategy. Come up with the strategy that's going to really unleash some productive forces in the economy. That piece of it, Stuart, I think is just completely missing from both the policy conversation and from any demonstrable policy, whether it be liberal or conservative government, whether it be Ontario or Ottawa. Yeah, if you'll remember, we had about a two-day period last year where the Liberals got really into productivity <laughs> around the federal budget. And then we wondered, is this going to last? Like, are they going to really focus on this? But you can see the things that they prioritize by what actually, you know, continues. Um, and I'll just point out, there's something that's, you know, interestingly came up a couple of weeks ago is Peter Nicholson, a well-respected um, former liberal policy guy, um, wrote about, you know, what if we got rid of the Canadian, the Canada health transfer, and we just said the provinces take care of this, it would involve some kind of tax swap that um, puts some of the taxes the feds collect into the provinces to sort of make it equal and keep the same amount of money in the system. And then you get rid of this friction between the feds and the provinces, which tends to result in these big deals with lots of money. I was watching Doug Ford's press conference this week, and he said, you know, the reason I'm doing this is we've been throwing money and money, money after money at this problem. And it's not fixing it. Doug Ford is not going to turn down the money, and that's never going to change for any provincial premier. So, um, if this is a ten-year deal, as the Globe is reporting, then you know we've got ten more years to think about how we might want to fix it in the future. Yeah, I, I just think both of you guys have really hit the nail on the head on a couple of points. Let me just uh, take them up directly to, to, to Rudyard's point about 
scarce public resources and the tension between long-term investment versus short-term consumption, it's worth recognizing that at present, in most provinces, healthcare represents 40% and higher of uh, provincial budgets. I mean, you know, we are going to be forced to make difficult choices about long-term productive investments um, or, uh, as Rudyard says, throwing more money into our healthcare system to support, uh, I hope my grandma's not listening, the wealthiest generation in human history. Um, and, you know, these are difficult questions, difficult choices, but they're ones we need to have. And and that brings me to Stuart's point. The risk, as I said earlier, is that this short-term or even medium-term infusion of federal dollars into the system takes that pressure off of provincial governments. It, in effect, says that you don't need to make trade-offs. So we're going to temporarily suspend scarcity. And the consequence is um, that the underlying supply-demand disequilibrium that I talked about earlier is going to persist. I, I mean, the numbers are striking, right, guys? We, we learned through the pandemic, we have fewer IC bed, ICU beds per patient than um, you know, much poorer, smaller countries. We have less technology, less, less, fewer doctors. I mean, the list goes on and on. And I, I really worry that um, that this uh, agreement between the the federal government and the provinces are going to derail um, the the progress that we were kind of nascent progress we were starting to see out of the provinces to to solve some of these issues. And and that's where I think the Nicholson proposal is kind of interesting. It in in effect. Um, uh, internalizes the both the the benefits and the costs of reform at at the provincial level, as opposed to creating this um, federal provincial dynamic um, um, that I I worry breaks that kind of information signal um, that provincial governments ought to be ought to be following. Problem with that, Sean, though, is the federal government is so desperate for relevance, right? I mean, talk about becoming headwaiter to the provinces if they let healthcare go. I mean, what is there a bunch of airports to run a failed uh, national defense <laughs> department to, to oversee, um, you know, a paralyzed national police force in the form of the RCMP <laughs> payroll systems that don't work. I mean, this, I agree with you. I think it's an interesting idea. I also think, you know, we need to understand that in some ways this could be a really hopeful conversation. There are all kinds of countries around the world from Israel to you know, great socialist uh, republics like those in Scandinavia that deliver great healthcare outcomes that are not facing acute crises, um, that don't uh, spend, or if they do, certainly not much more equivalent that we do of our tax expenditures to support healthcare. And what do all those systems have? Well, they have some form of mixed delivery. So I, I think the Ford government is, is being courageous here and doing something important in terms of moving the public conversation towards mixed delivery, um, because in the future, that is the solution. That's the only way that we're going to somehow strike some kind of balance between, as you say, over 40% of expenditures. In, in I think in Ontario, it's it's up closing in on 45% or north of that. I mean, this is, this is insanity. You cannot expect to have long-term wealth and uh, productivity gains when, you know, your entire public expenditure is being sucked up year after year, incrementally ever more uh, by healthcare. So Stuart, you get the final word on this. Um, you know, the hub has been doing some coverage of healthcare. We, you led a big series uh, this last fall with the, the HECT Foundation. Uh, we're going to take another kick at that can um, 
what's that going to look like and when could readers reasonably expect it? Yeah, well, we have more stuff coming in the immediate future about um, the Ford decision. We've got Sean Watley next week and we're going to take a run at the Nicholson proposal. So imminently is that stuff. And then, um, you know, there's just so much to cover on the healthcare front. And I think maybe we'll be changing some of our ideas based on how things are changing now. So um, there's always the issue of made. So I, I would expect us to probably take a run at that. Um, I, I don't think we'll be short of targets. That's the assisted uh, dying uh, yeah. legislation uh, here in Canada. Okay, guys, great roundtable. Uh, thanks for a terrific week at the Hub. It was a it was a busy one. And uh, if you're listening to this Friday or on the weekend, uh, Saturday, you should have in your email inbox the best of the Hub, a selection of our best podcasts, original reporting and commentary all for yours for your weekend reading and listening pleasure and check out our new podcast page a new dedicated page on the hub website uh, where you can check out all of our podcasts what is it sean you got an anniversary coming up you may podcast maniac uh you're coming up to one year what is it the 17th or something how many episodes have you done yeah, it's, it's really crazy. exciting. This this week marks the one year anniversary of the launch of the Hub Podcasts in in twenty twenty one, and and after today, between this episode and a forthcoming episode with David Frum, we'll be just approaching a hundred and eighty over the past twelve months. Oh, thanks wow. to uh, our producer Amal Atar Guzman, and of course uh, to those uh, Hub listeners who've followed us on this uh, on this journey. We have some great episodes already in the in the queue for the the coming weeks um so uh stay tuned that we'll hopefully have uh ongoing content that uh that listeners find interesting and useful as they think about all of these issues that we've been covering uh today and and over the past several months terrific sean okay congratulations i'm all on producing all those episodes too have a great week everybody we'll do this again next friday thank you for listening to the friday roundtable edition of the hub dialogues I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. You can access a video version of this recording anytime on YouTube. Simply search for The Hub or The Hub Canada. You can also get video and audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.